Hello. I was quite pleased with my new um, my shirt. And it... Thank you very much. Almost. Um, as I was saying, I was, I was quite pleased with my new shirt, and then my brother Peter came up to me and said, you're looking very Where's Wally, Jeremy. <laughs> so uh, I'm going for the Where's Wally look this morning, the Where's Wally chic. Um, got the glasses and everything. Um, so this morning I want to look a bit at the book of Acts. We want to look at a um, passage from Acts 9. Um, we're also going to have uh, an interview with uh, Laura, my sister-in-law, which is very exciting. Um, but first of all, I just want to kind of explain a few of, of the concepts that we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, does this sound all right? It sounds a bit weird in my ears. Does it sound okay to you? Yeah, I'll keep talking. I'll, I'll sort it out. Cool. Um, I have a clicker, which I'm going to use. There we go. Slide one. Who's ever seen this show, Who Do You Think You Are? Yeah? It's, um, <clears throat> it's an interesting show, isn't it? It's quite entertaining. They get celebrities on it, or people that are more or less celebrities. And they, they find out... Uh, who they are by way of, of going back into their family history. Um, and it's all very interesting and, and quite revealing. But there's this premise at the heart of this show, um, which is basically that if we dig back enough into our past, if we find out who our parents were and who their parents were and, and what they did for a living, what, what kind of life they lived, then maybe we can discover who, who we are. There's this kind of like inquiry that's going on at the heart of this, this show. And I think it's, um, it's kind of there in our culture quite a lot, this idea that we discover who we are by finding out where we came from. And I think there's nothing wrong with this. There's definitely an element of truth in it. It can be incredibly interesting and revealing to find out about our families and, and all that kind of thing. And you can you know, do a lot of research in that. It can be really, really interesting. But I want to meditate on a slightly different concept this morning, um, which we see in the Bible, in the New Testament. I want to read this, this uh, quote from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So, just think about this for a second. This is Paul writing to a church in, in Corinth. And he says this phrase, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. And it's quite a simple concept at the heart of this, but it can be hard to get, get our heads around. But he's basically explaining that because of what Jesus has done, because one has died for all, that's, that's Jesus. He has died for everybody. Therefore, everyone has died. So from now on, we, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. So from now on, our old life has gone, as everything that's, that's natural about us, our family history and everything like that, and we're completely new. Jesus himself says that when you're born again, that when you believe in him, you're born of the spirit. That's the phrase he uses. He says you're born of the spirit. And he introduces this, this concept. He says that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And you were born of the spirit. And it's not that our flesh stops mattering. It's not that our, our bodies and our physical and our, our natural nature stops being important. 
and our family and everything like that. But there's this other reality, there's this other truth that is at work when we believe in him. It's like at some point when I, I decide to make Jesus Lord and I decide to believe in him, I say, Jesus, I believe that everything that you did is completely true and that you did it for me and I want to make you Lord and I get baptized. At some point in that journey, I stop becoming primarily a son of David and Amanda Simmons and I start becoming a child of God. I start becoming born again, born from above, a citizen of heaven and all this new stuff starts becoming true about me and that's what I want us to kind of ponder this morning. Um, What significance does this have for us today? Well, we, we spend a lot of time as a church talking about relationship and about community. I think it It runs throughout the core um, of who we are. But when I think about what it means to live in relationship and to live in community, I keep coming back to this one word, and that's family. I was recently having a conversation with someone along these lines about what does it mean to live in community and and to be committed and and share life and that kind of thing. And they said something which kind of stuck in my mind, this this phrase. Um, They said this, It's different when you have family in the church. And I kind of know what what they're getting at. On on the one hand, I can really understand this. It is different when you have family in the church. I've grown up here. um, And if you've been here, you know, for a little amount of time, you'll know that the Simmonses, we're kind of part of the furniture. You know, my parents, they've been around here, like, forever. And they were on the first ever Doulos course. And, you know, I was kind of born into this whole thing. Um, And it's a very different thing when you you join from outside. You join for the first time, and you have to get to know people. You have to find your feet and all that kind of thing. And it it is very difficult. It's a very different thing. And I don't want to deny that. But I guess my point is that if we really believe something of what Paul had said in that quote we just read earlier, if we really believe the heart of the gospel to be true, then actually we are all children of God when we've made Jesus Lord, we all become children of God, and we are all family. I'm not saying it's, it's an easy thing to work out. I think we can spend a lifetime working out, really, what it means to live together as family and to relate to one another in that way. But I just feel there's a, a, a bit of a prompt to consider it again um, this morning, to kind of chew this truth at the heart of the gospel over a little bit more. Who knows who recognises this painting? Bit of a classic, uh, Van Gogh, um, or Van Gogh, if you want to do the proper pronunciation, which I'm not going to do again. Um, it's a really famous painting. It's probably one of the most iconic, famous paintings in the world. You, it's in the National Gallery. You can go and see it for free. Um, I want to ask a question. Who thinks that I can improve upon this painting? Let's have a show of hands. Put your hand up if you think I can improve upon this, this painting by Van Gogh. Wow, you have a lot of faith in me, guys. I'm, I'm impressed. Um, I, I personally don't think, well, I, I struggle to think that I can improve. I mean, it, it's a masterpiece. How can you improve upon a masterpiece? It's signed by Van Gogh. He kind of knew what he was doing. Um, it's there, it's framed, it's in the gallery. Um, But let me show show you how I can improve upon this this painting. 
Um, ignore the kind of stern-looking security guard in the middle. The point I'm trying to make is when Van Gogh painted his sunflowers, he didn't just paint one sunflower painting. He actually painted several, and they're not together. I think there's about five sunflower paintings in existence that we know of. Um, but the trouble with art is, you know, loads of rich people buy it, and it gets, you know, sent off to different people's living rooms around the world. And you never see it, apart from a few that are in, like, galleries. Um, and this is actually from 2014, this photo, um, where for the first time in 65 years, two of these paintings, two of the five, were exhibited side by side. And the thing is, Van Gogh never intended the sunflowers to be viewed on their own. He painted them in a series, in a sequence, and he intended them to be you know, played off alongside one another. So when you see them together, it's like they're all enriched in all the details in each of them, the colors, the composition, the light and dark, are shown up against each other. In a similar way, we weren't created, we weren't designed to exist individually. We were designed to exist together. And when we're together, that's when the richness of who we are, our individual quirks, giftings, personality traits, all the things that make us us, just become thrown up and made even more beautiful. So let's look at Acts 9 as we ponder this. We've read Paul's words already this morning, but I want to jump in, dive in, and look at Paul's life himself and really ask, what significance did this concept of family have for Paul? Um, so you'll be reading from Acts Nine. Um, I want to give a bit of a background to what, what's going on in this passage. Um, many of us will know that, that Paul, or Saul, as he's referred to in this passage, and I'll probably call him Saul, otherwise it would get very confusing. Um, he was one of the, the early leaders of the church. Um, he took the gospel around the eastern Mediterranean. He really saw the message of Jesus expand throughout the world. And he's quite famous for doing that, but he didn't start off like that. In fact, he started off as an enemy to the followers of Jesus. We were talking about enemies earlier. Now, Paul really was an enemy of the church. He hated the Christians. He wanted to stamp out this movement and, and you know, put the Christians to death, if necessary, certainly throw them in prison. Um, he oversaw the death of, of one early Christian leader called Stephen. And um, where we pick up in this passage in Acts 9, he's actually on his way to a place called Damascus to do just that, to round up more Christians uh, the ones that got away after the first wave of persecution in, in Jerusalem, and then throw them all in prison. But something happens on this journey um, that changes everything. He encounters Jesus, and it's a famous story. Um, there's a bright light. Um, he's on the road. Jesus appears, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is blinded. He loses his, his natural sight. And he's taken into Damascus. And he's left in a very tricky situation. Um, when you think about it, he's in Damascus. He's blind. Um, but he also doesn't know anybody in Damascus. He's completely on his own. And all the people that think they know Saul have completely the wrong idea about him at this point. So on the one hand, you have the Jews themselves. And they'd be expecting Saul to arrive and stamp out the Christian movement. They, they might even be waiting for him with this authority from the chief priests coming into Damascus. 
And they'd be like, finally, he's arrived, and we can you know, get rid of this, this movement. But they've completely got the wrong man in mind. See, that's not the Saul that has arrived in Damascus. He's changed. He's, he's encountered Jesus. But on the other hand, you've got the Christians themselves, um, and they're going to be terrified. So they, they know what he's done. They know the kind of dangerous man that he is. They know the, the havoc that he's already wreaked in, in Jerusalem. And they're going to be scared. They may not even want to leave their houses. Every knock on the door would, would probably inspire this kind of fear and terror. They might even be questioning, can we even go out to worship? Can we, can we leave our houses? They knew that he was coming to Damascus, but they were also completely wrong about who Saul was. That wasn't the Saul that had arrived in Damascus. And so kind of in, in the middle of everything, in the middle of all of this confusion, is Saul himself. He's just encountered the living God. There's a change that's, that's begun to be worked inside of him, far from all of it being completely worked out, but it's begun inside of him. Everything he thought he knew to be true up to this point, the religion that he was following, um, has been completely shaken, and he's misunderstood, he's vulnerable, and he's isolated. And that's where we, we pick up. I want to read from um, verse 10 in Acts 9. Um, so there was a disciple in Damascus called Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you come, had come, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So there we go. We have this very interesting interaction with a guy called Ananias. I always find it really interesting that God could use anybody, but he uses very reluctant, ordinary people like Ananias. Um, in fact, God could have appeared to Saul himself again. He could have miraculously restored his sight, sent him away, but he doesn't. He uses people. Um, and Ananias is, is given this, this vision from Jesus. And in this vision, Jesus says, right now at this moment, Saul is also having a vision of you coming to restore his sight. So it's kind of this complicated like vision within a vision. I've never really noticed that before, but this is all going on. And what's Ananias' response? God, don't you realize how dangerous this guy is? There's no way I'm going to, to Saul. He's killed you know, these people. He's thrown people in prison. Do you realize what he's done? And actually, I, I think Ananias might have been thinking not just about himself, but about his whole community. If this had been a plan by Saul to try and lure him there and then, you know, capture the rest of the Christians, then everybody else would have been in danger. So it's a very real moment, but God reassures Ananias. 
and explains the plan that he has for Saul, the destiny that he has in mind, and, um, and tells him to go. And Ananias obeys. And he arrives at where Paul is, is staying, and he says two words, which I think are incredibly significant for us today. He says, Brother Saul. I think it's, it's very easy to skip over this greeting of Ananias and get to the miraculous bit, if you like, the bit where Paul regains his sight um, and gets sent off and, and goes on to do his miraculous ministry and all the healings and, and church planting and everything that he did. But actually, I think these two words are just as miraculous as the, regain, as the regaining of his sight. See, nothing that Paul did throughout the rest of his life, none of the miracles, none of the churches planted, the people coming to know Jesus, none of that would have been possible had it not been for these two words. See, when God adopts us into his family, it's not just a, a vertical adoption. It's not just about us and God, but it's also a horizontal adoption. It's about us and our family, our brothers and sisters. I remember when I first discovered for the first time that God was my father, and I had that, you know, it talks about in the Bible, that the spirit of adoption coming and living inside of you. And I remember that so vividly when I was like, God, I, I know you're my, my dad. You know, I know that's true. And my, my life has never been the same since that moment. But what I didn't fully understand at that moment, what I'm still trying to work out even now, is what it means not just to be adopted in this me and God relationship, but to be adopted into a family. See, for Paul and for us, the gospel was never just about us and God. It's so easy to get caught into this me and God mentality. But actually, the gospel has always been about family. It's always been about much more than just us and God. He sets the lonely in families. He gives us brothers and sisters. That's what he did for Paul when he was isolated and vulnerable in Damascus. And it's what he does for us. This is where he's called us to be. But I want to go just a little bit deeper into this uh, interaction between, between Saul and Ananias. Um, see, there's a change in Ananias in this passage, which I find very interesting. In verse 14, Ananias is like, there's no way I'm doing that. This guy is dangerous. You know, I, I'm not going to see, see Saul. And then in verse 17, we have brother Saul. What, what happened in between those two? What changed in Ananias to get him from terrified to family? Something significant has happened there. See, God wants us to begin to see one another not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Not as individuals with our own individual family background and histories, but as a family, as a people unified and to get together where, like those sunflower paintings, all of our differences, all of our uniqueness is somehow more beautiful. And I often think that like Ananias, there's a shift that has to happen in us for that that change to happen, how we, how we view one another. Something I never noticed in this passage, see, Saul was naturally blind. He couldn't see anything. But he was actually seeing in the spirit. He was having a vision. So he was naturally blind, but he was seeing. It was just a spiritual vision. And I feel like God was teaching him how to see in the spirit. I feel like God was saying, Look, you, you can't see anything naturally, but I'm going to show you in this season what it means to see with your spiritual eyes. And I feel like God was giving the same lesson to Ananias 
at that time. See, Ananias is not physically blind. I feel like God is saying, I don't want you to see Saul according to who you think he is. Let me show you Saul according to who I think he is, who I am going to make him. And it's like God opens up Ananias' eyes and gives him this vision of this incredible plan that he has for Saul. He says, I have a plan for him. He is my chosen instrument. And in that moment, I think Ananias' perspective begins to change. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. I think that's how Ananias got from terrified to brother Saul. That's what inspired the faith that got him into where Saul was staying, fulfilling what God had for him to do. It was a vision that reached beyond cultural differences, social differences, what was you know, safe, what was expected, and through it, Saul becomes family. We're going to hear another story now. Um, I'd like to invite Laura up to the front. <clears throat> Everybody, this is Laura, my sister-in-law, um, keeping it in the family. Um, so, Laura, um, I'm just going to talk a bit about your background and, and your journey of how you, you came to be here. I'll start by asking, what was your experience of family growing up? Um, so, while I was growing up, or certainly in my teenage years, um, my family lived very kind of separate lives. Um, I was um, I was growing up with my dad and my sister. Um, my dad had bipolar disorder, so he was um, uh, quite solitary. He had like a lock on his door, so he would spend a lot of time just in his room. Um, he had kind of a hole, everything in there that he needed. So we didn't really have a lot of contact. Um, so because of that, I became very independent. Um, I looked after myself. I looked after my sister. Um, a lot of people around that time would say, wow, you're so strong, you're so brave, you, like, you're, um, you are very independent, and that would be like a compliment, and that mm -hmm. kind of built me up as mm -hmm. who I was, as a very independent, strong, mm -hmm. brave person. I could look after myself, mm -hmm. I could do things on my own. I didn't yeah. need other people to kind of help me. Mm -hmm. And so when you, the time came to kind of get a job and, and things like that, um, where did you decide to move to? Um, I decided to move to London. Um, uh, it seemed like a place for a lot of young professionals, single professionals live there. Um, I kind of I'd grown up watching Friends, and I thought it might be a bit like that. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> um, and a lot of my friends who I did have, they would have come. They they were from Canada. From they didn't have kind of have their family around them, mm -hmm. and that they they were very similar to me. I was very happy with that. That was kind of who we were. We were all mm -hmm. independent people. Great. And so you, you're working in a theatre in that time, mm -hmm. is that true? And you kind, of, you kind of were there for a while, but then you ended up in a new career professionally. Talk about how that yeah. happened. I moved into working in schools just through, um, through it was a, I needed two jobs. I was living right in the middle of London, so I needed to make lots of money. I, um, I, w I started working as a teaching assistant to make up my rent and then realised how much I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that I kind of, I worked in a school in Dagenham and kind of got to really enjoy working in it, really mm -hmm. want to work with the kids. So I, I trained as a teacher mm -hmm. and kind of found purpose in that. I'd always found um, purpose in the things I did, not necessarily in who I was. Mm -hmm. So I found a lot of purpose in teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, 
professional relationships were the ones that kind of moved me forward. Great. Um, so you're working in Dagenham, but living elsewhere in London um, as a teacher. Uh, but something suddenly changed, and this kind of unsettled you quite a bit. Could you talk about that season of your life? Yeah, I, um, I was moving to Hornchurch, which was a big move for me. I, I was just really nervous. I, wasn't very, I didn't cope well with change at the time in life, really. Um, yeah, I was having um, just a lot of nightmares. I was sick a lot. I was um, just really finding it hard, um, having a lot of panic attacks. Um, I had a friend at school um, who um, came to this church and um, she saw that I was having a hard time moving and said, well, you know, some nights come stay at ours if you're, fine, you know, if you're really panicking mm -hmm. and um, invited me over and uh, got, uh, invited, introduced me to other people. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of your first taste really of, of community and, and sort of family in a, a new way. Um, but there was still this kind of self-reliance kind of that you were clinging to. Can you explain a bit about how that played out in this? In yeah, so on one occasion, I had, um, I, I got very ill. I got labyrinthitis and a couple of other infections at the same time. Um, I was at home. I, um, I think I called 111. They said, you need to get to the doctors, made me an appointment, or the Queen's Hospital, they made me an appointment. And um, rather than calling my new friends and saying, "Can you help me? I need to get to, I need to get to Queen's Hospital," I kind of I, I, labyrinthitis is something that makes it's an ear infection, and it made me very dizzy. I couldn't really stand up straight, but I um, went and got on a bus and went across to Queen's Hospital on the bus and kind of dealt with it myself, really. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got back. Sort of, I've, I've done it. I got medication um, and um, after that let my friend know what had happened and um, she just told me how upset she was she, she just was very clear with me that that made her mm -hmm. made her upset that I'd chosen to do that rather than mm -hmm. to um, to um, rely on mm. on her and let her know that I needed help mm -hmm. um, and yeah just that I, I, and I sort of, I, you know, I'd been thinking, oh, I don't want to bother her, that kind of thing, don't want to burden her. So um, at that point, when she said that, I kind of realised something about mm -hmm. community and having people around you, and mm -hmm. um, something then kind of changed in me that I realised, oh no, actually, people do want to, mm. you know, be there for me. I guess they kind of really want to be involved in even the difficult yeah. things. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you got more involved in things. You actually uh, got to know a family with young children um, in the church as well and spent a lot of time with them. Um, and eventually, over time, you realized it, it, you kind of wanted to get baptized. You wanted to make a commitment to Jesus, and you were getting to know him as you were becoming part of the community. Could you talk about this season of your life as well? Yeah, so I was, um, I was getting to know people. I... Um, I was um, spending a lot of time with the Hiltons, um, and they were kind of um, also kind of encouraging me, saying, you know, we, you know, we want you to feel like part of our family. Um, that was like very hard at the same time. It's really great, very hard at the same time, um, and very scary. Not because they're scary, but you know, they were kind of they were very kind and loving and patient. But I, I had all these 
thoughts. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a family person. I'm not, you know, mm -hmm. I'm just not very confident in those, in those places. So I kind of needed to, it was like a building blocks of I was, you know, I was, I was these people, there were lots of people around me who were making me feel more like I could step into things, mm -hmm. like in church and step to make steps towards God, but then I would need God to help me make those steps towards being part of family, and then that would kind of build in every, every time I needed to feel, you know, it was either mm. the family, the safety of family, or God would have to make me take the next step mm. towards either, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And eventually you did get baptised. What happened at that moment? Um, when I got baptised, there was a huge change in um, my feeling of, about how I belonged. Um, and I did feel like I belonged as part of the community. I did feel like I belonged as part of a, f um, as part of a family and families um, around. Um, yeah, just it was just a huge jump, really. And um, around just after that time, I um, made the choice that I wanted to move here. Mm -hmm. um, and I had lots of options open to me, but I, I felt that God was saying, no, you need to become part of a family you mm. need to move in with a family um which again was very scary to me because actually that's exposing a lot of mm -hmm. um yeah exposing a lot of mm -hmm. myself um being very vulnerable um I hadn't really done that even when I was a teenager kind of mm. being open with people pe pe things that people were saying or doing having any mm. reflection on the way I lived and things like that mm -hmm. so yeah, it's very kind of hard. Well, it, I, I was very scared about that mm -hmm. at the time mm -hmm. before stepping into it. Yeah. But then over time, this was something God changed in you and you found that sense of belonging. Um, you found the, that kind of sense of purpose. And how would you describe things now? Kind of how, where has God taken you on, on this journey? So through, through living with the Hiltons, through other friends I have in the church, I've just... I, I do believe I belong. Um, I've learned a lot of things just that I needed to learn before becoming a Simmons, I think, um, <laughs> about um, being part of a family and, mm -hmm. and, and before marriage, before um, considering beginning a family myself. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, just I've, I'm able to move forward with God in a way that I wouldn't have had confidence to do before because mm -hmm. I've got that safety mm -hmm. around me, both of God and of family. Mm. Praise God. Thank you, Laura. Great. Um, when I heard Laura's story, it, um, it really struck me, not just because it's an amazing story of God's work in her life, but I feel like there's something in there for all of us. There's significance in there for all of us. In, in the sense of how many of us are on a journey from being an individual, you know, doing things our way, to being a member of a family um, where we, we belong and we're accepted, not because of anything that we've done, but just because of who we are. Um, I, I certainly am. I can see myself on that journey. And sometimes I get it right, and I live as if that's, that's the case. But quite often I get it wrong. And I, I lapse back into that. No, I can, I can do everything on my own. I can, I can cope on my own. Um, a guy called Andy Crouch, who's an editor of a Christian magazine, um, says this about family. He says, family is about the forming of persons 
But while in one sense a person is simply what we are as human beings, we are also able to become, to grow in capacities that are only potentially present in us at first. There's this idea in this, this quote that there's something about family that grows us. I think we heard it in, in Laura's testimony as well. There's something about the nurturing environment of family, which is a supernatural thing, a supernatural environment, that actually allows this change in us to happen, that we're formed, that we're grown into a new person. Laura left home an individual on a mission to make it on her own, um, but she found belonging in family. In a similar way, Paul left for Damascus as an individual on a mission, but somehow in the middle of it found family, and that catapulted him into his purpose in God. And there's two things I I think family does that I just want to explore as we um, close Uh, that I think are significant today. So, in family, we are seen at our worst that we may become our best. And I think this is true to an extent in natural families, in in every kind of natural family unit, however that looks. There's an extent to which you're seen at your your worst moment in order to be shaped and changed. But I think it's true of us as a spiritual family as well. Um, So let's look at the first one. Seen at our worst, there's something about the proximity of family that shows up some of our uh, weakest qualities. Um, it's almost like a bit like when you become part of a family, I think of it in terms of the shift into being married. That's kind of the clearest, most recent example I have. It's like you get a front row view a little bit of each other's faults. Um, my brother told me a story um, of when he and Laura first got married. Um, My brother likes to run, and he often goes for early morning runs. But Laura began noticing a phenomenon that would would happen um, after these runs. She would notice these socks that would appear at different points around the house. They'd be on the radiators. They'd be on the window ledges. They'd kind of be in between the banisters of the stairs going up. She's like, so she asked him about this. She said, Peter, what's with all the socks? What's going on with these socks? And he explained, oh, I, I discovered that when I go running, if I take my socks off and leave them around, then... I can reuse them the next day. (laughs) And this way, I can make a pair of socks last about two weeks without having to wash them. (laughs) Now, this had been going on for months before they got married, but there's something about them being married that that suddenly revealed this aspect of, of Peter's kind of habits. Sorry, Peter, for that. Um... I feel like I'm doing a best man speech or something. Um, <laughs> it's a silly story, but it illustrates a principle, I think, at the heart of family. There's something that happens. There's a shift that takes place when we move into family, and suddenly it's like things are kind of exposed. It happened with me when I got married. It's like when we, we, we shifted from just dating and being engaged to suddenly being married, it's like there's things you have to work through. It's like you put a magnifying glass up to your faults. Um, And I think for us that is true as well. Um, If we're truly family, then there should be a a sense of openness regarding the messiness of our lives, the things that we're maybe not proud of, the things that we're struggling with. Laura had to actively share about her period of of sickness in hospital. Um, She had to be open and deliberate with that, and, and she didn't. It was a lesson that she learned. But if we truly care about one another as family, then we want to know what's going on at our worst moments. 
I remember when, uh, just after my son was born, <clears throat> and um, Jane had noticed that I was just a bit off, that I was different for some reason. I hadn't noticed it myself, um, but I was off for paternity leave, and she was like, Jeremy, you just look a bit distracted. It's like there's something bothering you. I, you know, what is it? And I was like, no, there's nothing. I'm sure it's fine. But it carried on for a number of days. And Jane was like, why don't you call Daniel and, and talk to him about it? I was like, but I, I can't see any problem. Why would, I, why would I do that? But, you know, like a good husband, I, I decided I probably should pick up the phone. So I did and um, had a, a short chat with Daniel. And somewhere in the conversation, he asked me, what was the birth experience like for you? And as soon as he asked that question, my eyes filled with tears. And I realized that there was something that happened in that process of, of my son being born, which is, you know, can be a difficult experience. Um, often you think, you know, I'm, I'm not the person who has it the worst. I, I wasn't, you know, Jane went through a lot in that, <laughs> in that moment. And, but I think in the same way, because of that, I think I'd, I'd kind of hidden stuff away and bottled stuff in and pretended that I was fine, when actually something had happened that went down quite deep for me, and it came out just as I had that conversation and I, I decided to pick up the phone. Um, I think sometimes there is a barrier to, to that openness, to that vulnerability, to that messiness. But I believe that if we're truly family, then that's what, what family looks like. Um, there's a challenge in the heart of this which I've summarized as this. Lord, help me be active in opening a window into my worst moments. I want to highlight one scene from Jesus' life. Did he practice this principle? In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus chose three of his closest friends, his closest disciples, and invited them into the worst, most messy moment of his entire three years of ministry. It was the point when our Savior, the Son of God really question, can I even do this? Can I go to the cross and do the thing that I've been born to do? It takes some getting your head around, doesn't it? You know, the saviour of the world saying to his closest friends and followers, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. I don't think I can do this. But he opened a window and he, he left us an example to follow in that. What about this second point? So that we may become our best. See, God is about making us into persons. This isn't some self-help message, be the best you that you can be. It's not about that. It's about the change that God works in us so that we can be the people that he's created us to be. And God is using family to achieve that. See, as long as I've been in this community, I've been surrounded by people who see more for me than I can see for myself, people that have vision for me. And this leads to challenge. It leads to people wanting to be involved in my life, just like they wanted to be involved in Laura's life. I think in lots of places, in lots of groupings of people, to say, I'm doing okay, is great. It's fine. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Fantastic. Great. But I would characterize this community as a place where doing okay is not okay. I don't know if you've kind of experienced that, but I'm doing okay. That, that's not okay. Are you fulfilling what God has given you to do? Are you maturing? Are you growing? Are you being shaped into the person you're meant to be? And this maturing can be painful. It can be uncomfortable. I think it's only possible in family. There are many reasons why people would form groupings, whether it's you know, social, 
cultural, you know, or even we all follow the same religion, or we're from the same country or the same place. But none of these are enough to really produce that kind of change that I'm talking about. When I first spoke to Laura and, and asked her about her story in preparation for this, one of the things she said was that she saw a measure of change and development in her life up to the point that she truly found belonging in community. But it was like as soon as she stepped into family, it's like that process of change and development just accelerated. It was like there were things that were being challenged and changed, and she was growing so much faster. And that's because she had the safety of community around her. So seeing at our worst that we may become our best, unfortunately, um, in our society, the enemy has tried to flip these and make church a place where we're seen at our best that we may remain unchanged. You know, it's like the Sunday best message. He, he wants to make church a place where we, we come and we show our best face, we put on a special voice. I remember Mark talked about that a little while ago, your church voice. Um, we show our best side to people so that we can go away again and kind of just carry on living the way we always were. Um, if I show up at the right meetings, if I do the right things, then maybe everybody would just, just let me get on and, and live my life. But if we only ever give our Sunday best, then we're never actually going to become the people that God has made us to be. It just, it just can't happen. So what's the challenge for this second point? I believe it's this. Lord, help me catch a vision for my brothers and sisters. See, Ananias caught a vision for Paul. That's what enabled him to bridge that barrier into family, into relationship. And I believe that there's an invitation to catch a vision for one another as well this morning. Who is he giving me vision for? Where is God opening my eyes to see someone's potential, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit? What about Jesus? Did he model it? He looked at Peter, his disciple, who was immature, quick to speak, hot-headed, and he said, on this rock, I will build my church. That wasn't seeing according to the flesh. That was seeing according to the spirit. He called Matthew from the tax booth. He called Zacchaeus down from the tree. He lived his whole life seeing not with fleshly eyes, but with spiritual eyes. So what next? Well, I think all of this requires a step of faith. Just like for Ananias, he had to actually step out and go and find Saul. Similarly, Laura had to, I think probably a number of times across that journey, say, no, I'm going to open myself up to this. I'm going to choose community. I'm going to choose belonging. You know, when she maybe wanted to run away from it all and just, just go back to her flat and, and, and be on her own, to actually choose, no, I'm going to step in. I'm going to submit to that. So what does that faith look like for us? There's a decision on our part. Lord, help me be active in opening a window into my worst moments. I trust you enough to be vulnerable. Lord, help me catch a vision for my brothers and sisters. I love you enough to see you fulfill your potential. Just as we close, I want to look at another quote from Paul from Ephesians. He says this, So now you are no longer strangers and foreigners, you are citizens, along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. I think the enemy's idea would be that we all see each other as individuals. We see ourselves as individuals. And I think 
You know, when you, you think about the kingdom of darkness, I think that's what it looks like. It looks like a crowd of individuals imprisoned in their selfishness. But I think the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, looks like family. And this is where we live. So that's my challenge this morning, is are we going to break out of that individualism, that mindset? Ask God, renew my mind, give me spiritual eyes to see my brothers and sisters as they really are, to be vulnerable, and to catch your vision for them.